have your Bible, look with me again. In the book of Judges in chapter 9, <coughs> we've had now <coughs> already several messages from this chapter. I'm reading today only verses 25 through 29, but you know the context. Not necessary that I repeat it over again. This is the history. This is the record of God's dealings with Israel. In the face of their disobedience and apostasy. And the story unfolds to us in this chapter. <clears throat> We're taking only a portion of it today. Verse 25. And the men of Shechem set liars in wait for him, that is for Abimelech, in the top of the mountains. <clears throat> and they robbed all that came along that way by them. And it was told Abimelech. And Gaul, the son of Ebed, came with his brethren and went over to Shechem. And the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. And they went out into the fields and gathered their vineyards and trowed the grapes and made merry. <clears throat> Notice the marginal reading in your King James Bible. They made songs and went into the house of their God, did eat and drink. And cursed Abimelech. And Gaul the son of Ebed said, Who is Abimelech? Who is Shechem? We should serve him. Is not he the son of Jerubbabel and Zebal his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. For why would we, should we serve him, that is, Abimelech. And would to God this people were under my hand, then would I remove Abimelech. He said to Abimelech, Increase thine army and come out. Turn in a moment to that passage. Would you stand with me and sing again for the message number 400? And 52. Standing please, 452. <clears throat> Repent the voice of Christ. No longer dare delay The soul that scorns the mandate dies And meets a fiery day No more the sovereign eye of God O'erlooks the crimes of men his heralds now are sent abroad to warn the world of sin. O sinners in his presence bow and all your guilt confess. Savior now, your trifle with his grace. Soon will the awful trumpet sound and call you to his bar. His mercy knows the pointed bound and used to justice there. Amazing 
love that yet will call and yet prolong our days. Hearts subdued by goodness fall and weep and wrong and Seated. I have taken that well-known Latin expression for my title, pronounced in the English tongue in vino veritas. In the classical tongue in Wino Veritas, but by whichever pronunciation. I remember many, many years ago, the very first time I ever heard that expression. It's quite an interesting thing. I was working in Peachtree City, doing a job, fixing a car for a man who was a retired attorney from some northern state, but his wife was a Catholic nun that had renounced her vows and left the Catholic Church and was married to him. And uh, we were having some conversation or other, and she said that, used that expression as if she thought I should know it, and I didn't. And uh, she told me what it meant. In wine, there is truth, meaning that when persons are filled with wine, they tend to lose all inhibitions. They say what they really think. She thought it was quite humorous that I didn't know what that meant. But I do now. And I've taken it as a title to this message, or if you prefer, one might title this portion, Lies, L-I-E-S, Lies, with wine to wash it down. <laughs> lies with wine to wash it down. Hmm. We take up this morning just where we left off on last week. We had carried our studies last week through as far as verse 25, through verse 25 actually. But I made no comment on that last phrase in verse 25. And so I set it before you again. The men of Shechem set liars in wait for him in the top of the mountains and they robbed all that came along that way by them. And then there is this statement, and it was told Abimelech. This, of course, was exactly the design of these Shechemites in setting up these liars and wait. They had hoped to draw him out into an open confrontation. Their purpose now, that is, ever since God sent that evil spirit that we saw last week, their purpose now was ever and always to throw him down as their king and then for every man to do what was right in his own eyes. Someone told Abimelech, what was happening, and that was precisely as they would have it be, seeking to call him out. These liars in wait, verse 25, they hoped would furnish the impetus needed to ignite the contest which they inspired to, uh, aspired to acquire a contest with Abimelech. In the words of Matthew Henry, they sought to make him their prisoner. 
whom they had only recently made their prince. We may draw from that this lesson all the fickleness of the undisciplined human heart. It is truly double-minded. In the words of James chapter 1 and verse 8, unstable in all its ways. But now one thing more was yet needed for these Shechemites to accomplish what they designed to do. One thing more was yet needed. A leader. A single, powerful, ruthless general around whom all could congeal their hatred and their hopes would then be fully realized. And so it is to that end that our text tells us next in verse 26, And Gaul, the son of Ebed, came with his brethren. All that's lacking now is a leader. And in the very next verse, the very next phrase, the leader appears. A single, as I said, powerful, ruthless general around whom they could congeal all their hatred. Who is this God? Well, one much wiser than most commentator has most succinctly answered the question this way. We have no idea. We have no idea. But there are, from the contents of this record, a few things we do know about him. Surely he was an evil-hearted opportunist who saw an open door to turn the growing disaffection of the Shechemites to his own personal advantage. Adersheim called him a, quote, freebooting adventurer fully equipped with his own unholy band. <laughs> and here, surely, is a lesson for us this morning. I give it to you in the words of dear old Simeon. Turbulent persons are never wanting to fan the flames of discord and trouble, seeking their own elevation on the ruin of others. Turbulent persons are never lacking to fan the flames of discord and trouble, seeking their own elevation on the ruin of others. Oh, may the gracious Lord, may our gracious Lord deliver us from any such persons with such a spirit among our little flock here but oh, how easy it is to drink of this spirit. Not in open rebellion at first, but just a little spirit of unwholesome criticism. And in no time at all, this canker will poison the sweetest meat and rivalry and division will quickly result. And who doesn't know that a house divided against itself cannot stand? An opportunist shows up ready to fan the flames of division. Oh, please help me pray. Please help me pray, congregation, that our gracious Savior would crush all such thoughts within our own hearts and among ourselves. So then who is this God? And who are these brethren? Gaul the son of Ebed came with his brethren and went over Shechem 
went over Shechem. And the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. So, who is this Gaul and who are these brethren? And where did they come over from? Well, we can't know it with any certainty, these things. But this we know. In the summarizing statement before us, we even hear detail of the whole sordid affair. And we are told emphatically this, the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. Don't know where he came from. Don't know who he was. Don't know who these brethren were. Don't know where he came over from. But this we know. The men of Shechem put their confidence in him. Whoa, here, here, right here. That verse, before we move a step further in this record, here is surely a lesson of some great value, especially for you younger people. Let me warn you of the utter folly, the utter foolishness of casting in your welfare upon a little known boaster. We haven't yet opened those verses. We'll see them in a moment. But this is a man full of boasting. Sends out a loud proclamation to Abimelech. Build your army up and come out here. I wish I was in charge of these people. I'd clear them out of here. Oh, how often those that are more faint of heart will cower to such a personality. Cast in their lot. These Shechemites did. They, they just immediately, they, they cast in their lot and submitted to this man. Oh, the folly of casting in your welfare on a little known boaster. What did they know of this man? You young people learn this well and learn it early. Many will come to you with bluster and boasting. And they'll use the words of our modern lingo in America. They can talk a big game. Talk a big game. Many will come to you young people with a lot of bluster and boasting talking a big game. Who are nothing more than hot air and vain emptiness. Jeremiah. In chapter 17. And verse 5. We find these words. Thus saith the Lord. Cursed be the man that trusteth in man. And maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inherit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land and not inhabited. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when he cometh. But her leaves shall be green and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Oh, Jeremiah warns us against trusting in men, but that's exactly what these Shechemites did. They trusted in this man. They had confidence in him. I remember over the years, I used to hear as a young preacher, I used to hear old preachers say, oh, don't put your confidence in me. Don't put your confidence in me. And I used to think, I'm not sure that's a good thing to say, but I am now. I'm very sure now that's a good thing to say. Don't put your confidence in me. Confidence in the Lord. Don't put your confidence in man. Oh, 
Notice what Hanani said the words to King Asa in Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter sixteen. In verse 7, he sends these words. And Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, verse 7 of chapter 16, Second Chronicles, and said unto him, Because thou hast relied on the king of Syria, and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thine hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubans a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thy hand. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein thou hast done foolishly. Therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars. Why? Trusting in men. Oh, don't put your confidence in men. Don't put your confidence in men. Young people, as you start out on your way in life, don't put your confidence in men. They'll fail you. Blessed Apostle Peter. Way back there in that second epistle. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 17 talks about these kind of people that come talking a big game. He said these are wells, verse 17. These are wells without water. Clouds that are carried with a tempest to whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh through much wantonness, those that are were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome of the same, he's brought in bondage. These come with great swelling words, says the apostle. These come with great swelling words, boasting this, that, and the other. Don't be taken by that. Don't be taken by that. Here comes this man Gaul along. And he's boasting. And what a statement it is, that simple phrase at the end of verse 26. The Shechemite, men of Shechemite, of Shechem put their confidence in him. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. Oh, but now, before I go on in our verses, could I just pause here again and give you a warning? A warning from this text about the compromising, relativistic, pragmatics of our own culture and society. <laughs> you wonder where I'm going with that, don't you? Let me just say this to you. Some would say and have said, I've read, some studying this moment in Israel's history might say, oh, but what choice did Israel have? What choice did they have? Their circumstances forced them to seek help from wherever they could find it. Surely, they say, you'd not fault them for this. They found themselves in a terrible situation. The one they had voted in, they had elected and set up as their king. The one they had thought they could have confidence in had turned out to be a tyrant. And so they find themselves in this terrible place. And some ask the question, what else could they have done? Along comes a man and says, I'll deliver you from this man. I'll wipe him out. I'll do away with him. 
Put me in a place. And some would say, Israel had their back against the wall. What else could they do? They found themselves in a bad place. So I asked the question again, what could they do? Well, this is the age-old argument. I had no choice. Right? I had no choice. You understand my situation was terrible. I had no choice. We say, and again in a colloquial, colloquialism, we have this expression, we say, we find ourselves between the devil and the deep blue sea. What choice did I have? Oh, how often our sins seem to land us in this kind of place. But then what is the answer? I said I had a lesson for you. What's the answer to this question? I find myself in a bad place here. I, I got no choice. What's the answer? Well, let me allow one far better than myself to answer for us. Dear old Rogers said, But what a cursed thing is this. For the men either to use vile persons to be their, patro their patrons in their desperate quarrels or else to bring themselves to that point that they might become be uh, come upon one by one that sought and waited to destroy them. What a terrible thing, he says, this is that they find themselves in this place. Therefore, let not men defend their sins by this plea that they are driven to a strait and have no remedy but to fall upon a smaller inconvenience that they may avoid a greater inconvenience. For who brought this wretched choice upon them? Who brought this choice upon them? Who put them in this place? Who brought them to this impasse? With their back to the wall, as we say. Who cooped them into so narrow a room, Roger said. Surely their own sin. <laughs> Therefore, says Rogers, this defense, I had no choice. This defense is as bad as the crime itself. For if men have fallen into extremity by one sin, they must not redeem and avoid it by another. Nor do evil that a supposed good may come of it. What then? Says Rogers. What then are they to do? Humble themselves for the first sin and cast themselves upon God's hand for the issue and danger, whatever it may be. For who are they that having sinned, they should scorn to bear the shame of it? And especially if the extremity they avoid be but only a punishment of the body. And they sin doubly by provoking God through their indirect means. Some would say to this situation, what could they do? What choice did they have along comes this man? What can they do? Well, says Roger, they can repent of the first sin that put them in this place. Amen. Oh, look with me. 
I have the text right. Look with me. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, look with me at what David did when he found himself in this place. Look what David did, Psalm, uh, uh, 2 Samuel 24, verse 10. You remember David numbered the people. God told him not to number the people. He numbered the people. Found himself in a bad place. Bad place. Verse 10 says, David's heart smote him. After that, he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly. I have sinned greatly in that I have done. In that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant. For I have done very foolishly. What did David do when he found himself? He owned it. He owned it. He said, I've sinned. I've done very foolishly. But that's not the end of the story. When David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go say to David, David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them. Now David's got a choice. Oh, he's got a choice now. <laughs> My goodness, what choices. I, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and he told him, he said, Shall seven years of famine come upon thee in thy land? Or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee? Or that there be three days' pestilence of thy land? Now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. Now it's your choice, David. He's made one good choice. He confessed to the Lord. I'm sure as with, if his heart is like mine, he hoped that was the end of it. But it wasn't. It wasn't. God's going to give you another choice. So the Lord sent a pestilence, verse 15, upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. When the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It's enough. It's enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place. David spake to the angel when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, Lo, I've sinned. I've done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. Gad came that day to David, said to him, get up, go up, rear an altar to the Lord. Sometimes our sins... We think leave us with no choice. But oh, blessed Lord, unfortunately they leave us with hard choices. Hard choices. What are we to do? What are we to do? Confess it. Do what David did. Confess it. Oh, if you ask the question in this text, what in the world were the Shechemites supposed to do? They're in a quandary. No, they're not. They need to repent. That's what they need to do. Oh, said the prophet Micah, chapter 7 and verse 7. Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. I'll wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Hallelujah. Turn to God and own it. And Roger said, 
Why would you not submit to whatever it costs? Just own it. And let the Lord do what He will. But I can tell you, He's merciful. He's full of mercy. How many times have my sin brought me into a place I thought I had no choices but bad choices. But He's merciful. Oh, it's, listen young people, especially young people, listen to me. It's never necessary to follow one sin with another in order to get out of the first one. It's never necessary to follow one sin with another one to get out of the first one. All you'll do is compound your guilt. And God will move his hand from you. When you could turn to the Lord, run to the Lord, and I'm telling you, he's full of mercy. He's full of mercy. He's full of mercy. These Shechemites did have another choice. I would say to the one who says, what choice did they have? They had another choice. Repent. Of the evil they have done. As I read to you on last week. Fawcett said the Shechemites. With the characteristic fickleness of the multitude. Soon repented of their choice. It had been better had they repented of their sin. But where there is no conscience. We must not expect consistency. Abimelech had taught him, had taught them, Abimelech had taught them treachery towards his father and his father's sons, and it was God's righteous retribution that he should be punished by their treachery to him. But now, now having hearts, as we see, disinclined to repentance, Stiff-necked and rebellious, they cast in their confidence, verse 26, with this one named Gaul. And by means of a foolish and unwarranted sense of newfound safety, look what verse 27 tells us. They went out into the fields, gathered their vineyards, and trode their grapes. Having no hearts inclined to repentance, they cast their confidence in this proud boaster. And by means of that foolish and unwarranted sense of newfound safety, they go back to their lives. They just go back to their lives and their livelihoods. <laughs> Oh, how quickly does the alarm of pending danger wear off the unsanctified heart. How very quickly, how very quickly does the alarm of pending danger wear off the unsanctified heart. The fool very quickly goes back to his vomit and his mire. Oh, but look again. Not only do they return to their routines, their vocations, but they return to their wine and revelry. Verse 26. Came with his brethren and went over to Shechem and the men of Shechem put their confidence in him and they went out into the fields and they gathered their vineyards and they trod their grapes and they made songs and went into the house their God and did eat and drank. They returned very quickly to their revelry. The fool and his party. You've heard the expression the fool and his money are soon parted. Can I add to that one? 
The fool and his party will never be long parted. The fool and his party will never be long parted. Says Rogers, no sooner had they received this false security in their unproven hero than they parted wilds. Said Rogers, it's hard to know whether the wicked are more to be pitied when they're in their misery and calamity or when they're in their deliverance out of it. It's hard to know, isn't it? Whether the wicked are more to be pitied when they're in their calamity and their trouble or when they're out of it and delivered. Hard to know. Roger said, For by them they are held, by that is, by their troubles, by their calamities, they are held in some awe and fear. But when they are set free, they are most dissolute and unruly and more offensive by excesses therein than they are by impatience in their calamities. But in both they are greatly to be pitied. And although their bodily estate be to be lamented greatly, yet it is far worse with their soul as is manifest in their breaking out so fearfully and damnably in all manner of sin and greediness. Roger says, I hate to see them when they're in difficulty and trouble. But it's worse when they're not. Because they compound their sins. Which is worse, says Rogers. It's hard to say. But surely, he says, both are to be lamented. So then, in verse 27, they party again. And notice with me what else. Verse 27 again. And they went out into the fields and gathered their vineyards and trod the grapes and made merry and went into the house of their God and did eat and drink and cursed Abimelech. <laughs> Notice with me again what else we find there. They went into the house of their God. Gill points out that they went, all of them, into the very temple from whence they took the money to kill Gideon's sons and they raised up Abimelech and now, three years later, they're in the same temple cursing him. Oh, the hypocrisy and the short-lived loyalty of idolaters. Well, we could say in vino veritas, now the truth comes out to what's really in their heart. They curse the black. But no, no, this was an appointed time. Notice when it was. This is at the time in Israel when there's the gathering in and the harvest. That was an appointed feast time. Ordered by God in Leviticus 19 and verse 24. This was a God-appointed feast time. But here they have prostituted it to Baal. Without, hopefully without saying too much this morning. But I confess it's a, it's a touchy subject with me. We've entered into a time when so-called Christianity, Christendom, has been guilty of this across the board. We're recognizing in so many of our churches things that God appointed, but we prostituted them to Baal. Christmas. Easter. All this paganism. Godless paganism. We've wrapped it up. I especially hate that sign. We're nowhere near Christmas, so it's all right for me to talk about this, I guess. 
I especially hate that sign. Don't leave Christ out of Christmas. <laughs> Christ, the person of Christ, was never in that thing they call Christmas. You don't have to worry about leaving him in it, out of it. He was never in it. This was a feast that was appointed by God. It was a cold forward time of festivity and rejoicing. But they have prostituted the thing to Baal and gone into the house of their God. And prostituted it to Baal. Lord, help our churches. Our brother was praying earlier. God send repentance and repentance, weeping and praying. God send repentance to our church. We're going to have to have pulpits that will stand and tell them the truth and preach the truth. And there will be no repentance until sin is exposed. The fallen heart of man is a bottomless pit of creativity. Hear me now. The fallen heart of man is a bottomless pit of creativity in prostituting God's holy things. No end of it. Prostituting God's holy things to carnal festivities, wine-bibbing, revelry, and many of our churches have joined in this ungodly orgy. Prostituting God's things. But now, notice with me verse 28. Gaul the son of Ebed said, Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem? That we should serve him. Is not he the son of Jerubbaal and Zebel his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. For why should we serve him? Bush said, The excitement occasioned by wine in scenes of carnal myrrh and revelry, naturally prepares men's heart for murders, treason, and every evil work. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't remember the men I've talked to in jail over these many years who said, Preacher, I was drunk. I'd have never done that. I'd have never done that. I hadn't been drunk. Bush said the excitement occasioned by wine in scenes of carnal revelry naturally prepares men's hearts for murders, treason, and every evil work. Matthew Henry said it is who said they drank healths to his confusion and with, and with as loud a huzzah as ever they had drunk them to his prosperity. But there, that very temple whence they had fetched money to set him up with, they did now meet in to curse him and contrive his ruin had they, be, did, uh, had they deserted their idol God with their image king. They might have hoped to prosper, but while they still cleave to the former, they, the latter shall cleave to them to their ruin as long as they hold on as long as they hold on to their idol God they'll be cursed with this image bearing king another has said it this way men of no conscience will always be men of no constancy men of no conscience will always be men of no constancy. So here they are. Here they are. They're in the temple drinking liquor and making songs, writing songs and being merry and cursing Abimelech. Somebody else said it this very succinct way. Wine, revelry, and rebellion always go together. Wine, revelry, and rebellion always go together. 
So then under the enchantment of a false security, they went on about their lives again. They made songs. <laughs> they drank liquor. They worshipped their false gods. And they cursed Abimelech. And so it is that in verse 28 and 29, we see that this is the perfect environment to hatch the egg of a villainous snake. Gaul, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? Who is Shechem? Shechem, that we should serve him. Is he not the son of Jerubbabel? And Zebal, his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for why should we serve him? And would to God this people were under my hand. Then would I remove Abimelech. And he blasts out. Hoping the word will get out of this group. And make its way all the way to where Abimelech is. He says increase thine army and come out. Lord have mercy. This is the perfect environment. Perfect environment to hatch the egg of a villainous snake. Gone. Whoever he is, he says, cast off this half Shechemite. Remember now, Abimelech's father was Gideon. Cast off this half Shechemite. Set up a true Canaanite government. One whose head is the son of the founder and head of Jesus. We know that's true in Saint First Chronicles, First Chronicles, chapter two, verse fifty through fifty-two, and Genesis thirty-three, nineteen. You have the evidence of that. It says Adershim Gideon. It is an appeal to Baal as against the house of Gideon, a revolt of old Shechem against modern Shechem. In favor of the old patrician, the descendants of Hamor, against Abimelech and his lieutenant Zebad. Says Bush, in contemplating this scene, Gaul is comparing himself to this Abimelech. And he says, who is Abimelech? Who is Shechem? Compare them together. Put this base-born, worthless usurper by the side of us native Shechemites, and what reason can be assigned for our subjection to him? If ye will be in subjection at all, call someone in authority who is descended from the ancient and legitimate stock of Shechemites. Says Bush, his words clearly evidence that his real objective was not so much to recover their liberties for his countrymen as to persuade them to change their ruler. It's not easy to set bounds to the mischief that may be affected by an artful leader working on the minds of an inflamed people. That's why young people you stay away from alcohol. Anything that Inflames your mind. Takes over your reasoning capacity. Read that last statement again. It is not easy to set bounds to the mischief that may be effected by an artful leader who's working upon the minds of an inflamed people. Well, we see that every day on our news, don't we? <laughs> inflamed people. People working on their minds. So they cursed Abimelech. And well they might, my eye. May I say hearty amen? They cursed Abimelech. And well they might. But why? But why? What does the scripture verse tell us here? Why did they curse Abimelech? I said well they might. They cursed him, but not because they found him to be a mass murderer, which he was. He ought to have been cursed. But they didn't curse him because he was a mass murderer. 
They didn't curse him because it was a low-born bastard son unworthy of any public recognition, which he was. But they didn't curse him for that reason. They didn't curse him because he was a usurper and a tyrant, which he clearly was. But they didn't curse him for that. They didn't curse him for any of this. They cursed him. Why? Why? Here it is. Because he was the fruit of Jerubbaal, the destroyer of Baal. <laughs> they didn't hate him because he was a mass murderer, because he was a low-born bastard son, because he was a usurper and a tyrant. They didn't hate him for any of that. Here's what they hate him for. Because he was descended from the man that destroyed their idols. Oh, nothing. Hear me now. Nothing more quickly stirs a sinner to violence than when wine inflames the brain and anything comes between their hearts and their idols. Oh yes, oh yes. Nothing more quickly stirs the sinner to violence than when wine inflames the brain and anything comes between his heart and his idols. Oh, how many divorces, how many wrecked homes, how many wrecked lives have been the fruit of this lethal combination. Alcohol. Somebody standing between the sinner and his idols. They cursed him. They cursed Abimelech. They went into the house of their God. They drank and they cursed Abimelech. And here's what they said they cursed him for in verse 28. Is not he the son of the man that destroyed our idols. Hmm. Finally, in verse 29, when wine has worked its wicked magic and prideful ambition has murdered reason, and now no bowl, no boast can be too bold. Tell Abimelech, increase your army and come out. Say it one more time. When wine has worked its wicked magic and prideful ambition has murdered reason, now no boast can be too bold. So what will come of all of this? What will come of it all? God willing, we shall see. Stand with me, please. Turn your hymn book to number 447. Stand and sing with me, 447. Stains within your breast 
deprive your soul of Why will you end the crooked ways of sin and folly go? In pain you travel all your days to reap immortal But he who turns to God shall live through his abounding grace. His mercy will the guilt forgive of those who seek his face. Bow to the scepter of his word, renouncing every sin. Submit to him, your sovereign Lord, and learn his will divine. His love exceeds your highest thoughts. He pardons like a God. He will